I always complain that they put the, these giant flowers up here and I couldn't see over them. So they replaced them with shorter flowers. Now I feel obligated to, I feel obligated to preach from up here a little bit. I'll tell you what, I have all morning since I've woken up this morning, I have felt such a fire in my belly for, for, this, for this time. And God is doing something in here today. And, uh, and you know, what's, what's, I'm excited for this message because uh, as the Lord has prepared this in my spirit, as he's spoken this into my spirit, it has been so edifying and encouraging to me. So uh, I feel like as I, as I share this message today, I'm, I'm sharing this and speaking this into my own heart, into my own spirit as well. So I hope that you feel the same uh, joy and edification from this, from this that I have felt as I've uh, spent time preparing this. Uh, before we get started, let's just pray. Lord, we just, we just thank you, Lord, that you're doing something in here today, God. Lord, we're thankful that you meet us here. That you're alive and present with us here, God. Lord, nothing that we do here can have any significance outside of your touch, Lord. And so we just surrender this to you. All that we do here today is just for you, God. I pray that you would soften our hearts and open our hearts, open our ears to be able to hear your words today, Lord. Lord, I just surrender my voice to you, God. We pray for, for your kingdom come and your will be, to be done here today, Lord. And so we just give this time to you today, Lord. Do with it what you will. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm just going to start off here real quick. I'm going I'm to read uh, first in Romans chapter 8, uh, verses 28 and 29. This, these couple of verses are really going to lay the foundation for um, this message today. And I'm going to read this actually out of the Passion Translation because I just think it really gives a clear view of what, um, what Paul is writing in this, in this book, or in this, these couple of verses. And this is what it says. So we are convinced that every detail of our lives is continually woven together to fit into God's perfect plan of bringing good into our lives. For we are his lovers who have been called to fulfill his design purpose. For he knew all about us before we were born and destined us from the beginning to share in the likeness of his son. The means, that mean, this means that the son is the oldest among a vast family of brothers and sisters who will become just like him. I was uh, on good, this past Good Friday, I read this blog post. Um, I was at work and I read this blog by, by uh, this guy named Micah Wood. He's a pastor of the Ramp Church in Hamilton, Alabama. A lot of you guys know the Ramp is this conference that they bring up here. Well, they actually have a church uh, that's down in Hamilton, Alabama. And Micah Wood is just uh, the pastor of that church, and he just brings such clarity to the scripture. It's really, really awesome. So I was reading this blog post. I don't normally read a lot of blogs, but I was reading his blog post um, on Good Friday. And uh, let me just give you just kind of the premise of what, what this blog said. And it's brought so much revelation to me. And, and, and not the blog itself, but the blog itself seemed to lay the foundation of the Lord just starting this avalanche of revelation in my spirit uh, because of this. So let me just start off here. Let me read Genesis chapter 1, verses 11 through 13, or through 12. And this is, this is what it says. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit 
in which is their seed, each according to its kind on earth, and it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. We jump into Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 5, and this says, When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused, caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So if you read Genesis chapter 1, you read a little bit of, of the creation story, how God created things to be. And the Lord essentially spoke things, and they were. His voice was very this very voice just brought things into manifestation into physical and natural form. He spoke, and they were. And then it comes to the time where he's going to form man, and he doesn't just speak man into being. He actually molds man. He picks up his dirt, and he molds man into being. And then he breathes into his nostril, and man becomes a living creature. And, and you'll notice right after this, in, verse, in Genesis chapter 2, um, the scripture says that after he had formed man, says the Lord God planted a garden in Eden. Now the Lord has, to this point, spoken everything into being. But after he had created man, he planted a garden. And you ask, why would God plant a garden rather than do what he had already done through the rest of creation and just speak a garden into being? Because if he would have spoke a garden into being, out of his mouth would have manifest a garden. But he didn't. He planted a garden. And this is, this is the reason why, because God likes gardening. It's a, it, really, it really is as simple as that. Gar God likes gardening. Gardening. He likes the process of planting. He likes the process of watering and nurturing a seed. He likes the process of watching a seed sprout forth life. And he likes the process of watching things grow. He likes to plant a seed and then watch a seed become a fruitful tree. He likes to do that. Because there's really, there's literally no other explanation for why God wouldn't have spoken a garden into being for, for Adam and Eve to dwell in. And rather, he planted a garden. He planted it because he likes to garden. He likes gardening. That's my message today. Just God likes gardening. I don't even like cutting my grass. No, that's not the end of this. So we, we hop all the way into the New Testament. Jesus has been crucified, and one of his disciples, Joseph and Nicodemus, they come to take his body and prepare it for burial. And in John chapter 19, I've read this a million times, and, and then this, this blog just brought revelation to this, brought this out to me. In John chapter 19, verse 41, the scripture says, Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. And actually, if you jump ahead to, the, to, to 
the next chapter, you'll see Mary come into the garden. And Jesus is literally standing in the garden. And she, and he says, woman, who are you looking for? And she responds to him as if assuming that he's the gardener. Which is cool because he's not only the gardener of that garden, he's the gardener of every garden. And, then we, and when we reflect on the process of gardening, we reflect on the way that God created things to be. In Genesis chapter 1, the scripture says that let, let seeds produce plants that produce seeds of like kind. So Jesus is planted in the garden as the seed of God, as the son of God, to produce sons and daughters to God. Isn't that so cool? And this blog just brought so much, so much to me. So I'm thinking as, as, a, as I'm driving home from work after reading this blog, and this is just heavy on my spirit, heavy on my heart. I'm reminded of all the times of growing up in New Waterford and driving through New Waterford in the, in the late spring and the early summer and smelling that fresh, fresh aroma of poop. And you guys know exactly what I'm talking about because you guys call it fresh air. You open up your windows and stuff like that, right? Roll down your windows and drive through and catch some fresh air. But, but have you ever thought about this? Have you ever thought about why it smells like poop? And the reason is because the farmers have strategically placed the manure, the poop, throughout the, feeds, the, the fields because the poop fertilizes the seed. And the poop fertilizes the seed because the gardener who created it made it to be that way. He designed it to be that way. And we just figured it out. And I think how many times in our lives do we look around and our circumstances and our situation just honestly looks like poop? But we hold on to the hope that because God grows beautiful and fruitful things out of poop. And not only that, but he's actually, he actually uses that to nourish and fertilize the small seed of faith that he's put inside of us. I've probably got all, this is probably the most attention I've ever had from the kids ever in my life. They said, this guy just said poop like five times on stage. I got to hear what he's talking about. And I'm glad because you know what? These young people, you're going to deal with some poop in your lives and, and, and you need to know that there's hope that Jesus grows beautiful things out of that. Jesus feeds millions of millions of people out of fields covered in poop. This is the truth. This is, this is real. And I, and I think, I think why, why, does, why does God like gardening? And I think that the reason he likes gardening and the reason that he has put these processes in place and designed planting and such as, as he has designed it is because gardening, is, it's in essence in nature, restorative. It's taking the ground that once maybe produced fruitful and, and, and healthy plant and, and it's recognizing that it has been, become hardened and it's tilling up the soil and planting new seed and maybe spreading some fertilizer in order to make that ground produce growth again. Restoring purpose to the very ground.
In John chapter 12, starting in verse 24, Scripture says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. This is, this, is, this is the good news of the gospel. The Lord wastes nothing. If you go through a hardship, if you go through a struggle, if you go through suffering, if you look around and everything just looks like manure, if you look around and everything just looks like poop, God grows beautiful things out of that. And he may just be using that purposefully in order to fertilize the seed of faith that's inside of you. When I think about God, I, 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 I would often associate God with creator. But the truth is that God spends two chapters of this giant love story. He spends two chapters talking about creating. And he spends the next 48 chapters of Genesis and 65 books of the Bible talking about how he was restoring everything. Because God is more glorified in his ability to restore than he is in his ability to create. And here's how we know this. Because when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, God didn't crush them back into the dirt that he created created them out of. He didn't crush them and start new because he could have. But rather, he he wrote a love story in in, in the process of restoring so that he might be glorified through it. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, what God does is first he, he encounters Adam and Eve in their sinfulness, and the first thing he does is he turns to the serpent. He turns to the serpent and he says, I will put hostility between woman and you, and her offspring will crush your head and you'll bruise his heel. And her offspring, his name is Jesus. And what, and what God is saying in the garden before he even exiles them out of the garden, you know what he says? Satan, everything that you've taken from me today, I'm going to take it back. I'm going to restore all of it back to myself. I have a plan in place. I had a plan before I ever created a single thing. And that plan is to restore. God is most glorified in his ability to restore. When Mary came to the garden and she peeked into that empty tomb... It was empty. That means that the world had beaten Jesus to the point where he was totally unrecognizable. And you know what God the Father looked down and said? I don't need to throw that out and make a new one. I don't have to throw that to the dogs and scrap that plan. Let's make a new one. I can restore that. I can restore what the world has abused to the point where it's unrecognizable. He didn't trash Jesus' body and start fresh. He restored, and he didn't just restore, he glorified. This message is pretty easy to prepare, honestly, because I can turn to literally any page in this entire Bible, and I can tell you how, how what God is doing right there is in the process of restoring. Any page in that Bible. I'm going to share with you just a little bit because here's the thing. What this is made up of, it's made up of a bunch of individual and corporate examples of God restoring power that are all part of a larger and final restoration. 
So let me just tell you a little bit of the history of Israel. And so I can, can, so I can show you how God works out his plans to restore. Israel, uh, Joshua went in and took the land of Canaan by um, the power of God. He goes in and takes the land of Canaan, and the land of Canaan becomes the land of Israel. And at the beginning of Israel's reign, and in, in the beginning of them becoming a nation, they were ruled by judges. And Samuel was one of the last, well, he was the last judge. And the people came to Samuel and they said to Samuel, we look around and we see all these other nations and they have kings and we want you to give us a king. So God gives them a king that fits the worldly desires that they had. And that's King Saul. And the king that fits the image of a worldly king produced worldly things, and that was corruption. And so Saul is corrupt, and God next appoints, anoints, and then appoints King David to rule in Israel. And King David is a, uh, is a type or foreshadow of Jesus. He's a, he's a prophetic foreshadow of Jesus. And King David, David wasn't perfect, but God called him a man after his own heart, and he called him Beloved. And David reigned in Israel and set the stage in, 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 the, in the reign of David and then the transfer of reign as David dies, his son Solomon becomes king. Israel becomes this powerful nation. God's protection is over them. King Solomon is known as the wisest king ever. But here's the thing about King Solomon is he loved the ladies. He had 700 wives. 700 and the Lord gave him specific instructions, do not marry foreigners that worship other gods because they will, they will make you to turn from me and worship other gods. Well, Solomon loved the ladies a little bit too much. He married foreigners. He started to worship other gods. And God spoke to him and said, I'm not going to destroy you for the sake of my servant David because of the promises that I've made to him. But rather, when your son takes reign, Israel is going to become divided. So Solomon dies and his son, son uh, Rehoboam takes reign in, in, in Israel at that time. And through a series of circumstances, essentially, Israel is split in half and, and Solomon's son Rehoboam only, uh, only reigns as king of Judah. And Jeroboam reigns as king of Israel, which is the remaining tribes. And then that starts this avalanche of sinfulness in Israel and Judah. Judah is sprinkled in with a few kings that honor God, but mostly we just see this overflowing of corruption and this building up of corruption, the people serving other gods and worshiping other gods. And so finally, God has had enough, and he removes his protection from the land of Israel, and Israel is conquered and taken into captivity in Assyria. And Judah is going to follow soon after. They're going, to be, they're going to be conquered and taken into captivity in Babylon. But right around this time, where, where, where Israel is being taken into captivity in Assyria, and, and, and uh, Judah is preparing for captivity in Babylon, um, the Lord brings forth these powerful prophetic voices that we read about in Scripture, Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Zechariah and Haggai and a lot of these other, Joel, a lot of these other really prominent uh, 
uh, prophetic voices, they come to being either in the, in the coming in to captivity, during the captivity, or in the release of captivity, in the short period of time. Now, it, when Judah went into captivity in Babylon, they were only in captivity for seven, 70 years. 70 years seems like a long time, but in retrospect of, of the big picture thing, it's not a long time. So these prophetic voices reigned within a fairly short amount of time. And God spoke through these prophets to the people to tell them his plan. In Jeremiah 29, he actually tells them that they're going to be in captivity in Babylon for 70 years. But listen to what he says in Jeremiah chapter 30. Chapter 30, starting in verse 3. God says, For behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people, Israel and Judah, says the Lord. And I will bring them back to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they shall take possession of it. In chapter 31, Jeremiah, starting verse 11, Jeremiah says, For the Lord ransomed Jacob, and he has redeemed him from the hands too strong for him. They shall come and sing aloud on the height of Zion, and they shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord, over the grain and the wine and the oil and over the young of the flock and the herd. Their life shall be like a watered garden, and they shall languish no more. Then shall the young women rejoice and dance, and the young men of old shall be merry. I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them, and I will give them gladness for their sorrow. And the prophet Ezekiel, he, he, prophet Ezekiel starts speaking immediately after this exile into Babylon. And this is what he says in verse 36. Listen to what the Lord does through him. But you, O mountain of Israel, he's speaking to the land of Israel, the land that doesn't have any people in it right now because they're all exiled. And he speaks, God speaks through Ezekiel to the land. This is what he says. But you, O mountain of Israel, shall shoot forth your branches and yield your fruit to my people Israel for they will soon come home for behold I am for you and I will turn to you and you shall be tilled and sown and I will multiply people on you the whole house of Israel all of it the cities shall be inhabited and the waste places rebuilt and I will multiply on you man and beast and they shall multiply and be fruitful and I will cause you to be inhabited as your former times and I will do more good to you than ever before. Then you will know that I am the Lord God. The moment before the moment that God had sent the people into exile, he had a plan to refine them in exile and restore them to purpose. It was always his plan. Before he ever spoke it out of the mouth of the prophet, before David ever became king, he had a plan, and that was to refine and restore Israel. There was literally no amount of brokenness that could step between God's plan to refine and restore his people. Because the reason that Judah went into, into exile when they did was because there was a king, his name was Manasseh, and he was the worst king in all of the Bible, probably. He was so bad that he literally sacrificed his own children to demonic gods, demonic forces. And still, God's plan was to send his people in, refine them, 
and restore them. Sometimes when our situations don't look so good, God's, pro- God's promise and his plan, whether it's the consequences of our own bad decisions or not, God's plan is to refine you and restore you. In Daniel chapter 3, we see this play out a little bit. We see what the Lord is doing. We see that he's not just laying, he's not just punishing people in exile. He's refining them. We see evidence of this in Daniel chapter 3. God sends um, these people into Babylon, these exiles into Babylon, and and there's four men, young men, who uh, become prominent in the land of Babylon because God, or the king Nebuchadnezzar, actually uh, uh, brings forth these young men who are capable um, good-looking young dudes, and they start to, he starts to culture them in order that they might culture the rest of Israel. So he starts to teach them the cultures and the ways of Babylon so that they might teach the rest of Israel the cultures and the ways of Babylon. And their names are Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And you guys might know them better as Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And in Daniel chapter 3, Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have risen to some form of prominence in the land. They've been given favor in the land. And the king built the statue. And he says, when I blow my trumpets and I blow my horns, everybody in all nations are to come and bow down to this statue. All nations come together and bow down to this statue. And he blew the horn, and all the nations came together, and they bowed down to the statue, except Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And Nebuchadnezzar hears that they haven't bowed down to this statue, and he calls them to himself, and he says, if you don't bow down when these these horns blow, I'm going to throw you into this burning furnace. And they reply, if you throw us into this furnace, our God can protect us from that, but even if he doesn't, we're not bowing down to that darn statue. And so Nebuchadnezzar has them thrown in a furnace. Now now notice this. He has them thrown, walked to, and thrown in a furnace in front of all the nations, and, and God meets them there. With all the nations watching, God meets them in the middle of the furnace. And then he walks them out of it with all nations watching. And here's what's cool about here's what's cool about this. So Hananiah, the name Hananiah means mercy. The name Mishael means no god like Yahweh, and the name Azariah means Yahweh has helped me. So in Jeremiah one five, when God says, "Before I formed you in your mother's womb, I knew you." Before these young boys were ever named, God knew them. And 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 before they ever walked into exile in Israel. He knew the plans he had for them, and they were planned for good and not for destruction, to give them a future and a hope, and a fiery furnace wasn't going to stand in the way of that. And if there was any ounce of humanity in them as they're walking towards that furnace, they're a little bit scared. Matter of fact, they're probably terrified. And everything around them probably looks pretty hopeless. And that's exactly where God meets them. When there seems like there is no hope, that's when God meets them. In front of all the nations, with everybody watching, that's when God meets them. 
Because God's plan all along was take, to take them in there so that when everybody's watching, he could show himself to them and he could start to refine their spirits. He could start to fertilize them in the middle of their exile and in the middle of this fiery furnace, he could start to fertilize that seed of faith that he'd placed inside of them. And then you know what he did? After 70 years in exile, exactly what he told them he would do. He walked them right out. And he didn't just walk them right out. Persia had come in and taken over Babylon. And the king of Persia said, anything that you need to rebuild your city, let me know and I'll foot the bill. I will deliver anything that you need to the land in order to rebuild your, your temple to God and to rebuild your city. Because God is faithful to restore And all these little stories of restoration are just part of a bigger one. As if God was done restoring then. In Acts chapter 3, starting in verse 19, Scripture says, Repent therefore and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time of restoring all things about which God spoke from the mouth of his prophets long ago. So when those prophets were prophesying um, of, of the rest restoration of God's people, God was saying, yes, I'm going to restore their people, and then I'm going to continue to restore them for the, for, until the time where I return and rest restore everything. Jesus came, died on a cross, was planted in the grave to produce sons and daughters to start the process of restoration beginning in our heart. That's what's most important to him. And that's why when those, those friends carried that paralyzed man to Jesus and they ripped up the roof and they lowered this guy down through the roof, Jesus looks down and says, your sins are forgiven. He says, first I'm going to restore your spirit and after I've restored your spirit, then I'm going to come restore your body. And God has restored our spirits until the time where he comes to restore everything. In Genesis chapter 11, the people um, of the earth, they have come together and they are, uh, they start to build this tower. And this tower is going to reach the heavens and God looks at this and says, this is, this is not good. So God separates their tongues. He confuses their tongues. He gives them different languages so they can't communicate. So they stop building the tower and they spread out and become nations based on their tongues. Because God says, I need to be able to identify my holiness in my people, in these people. And then in Acts chapter, th Acts chapter 2, nations and tongues have come together for the feast of Pentecost. And you know what happens? Tongues of fire fall on the people there. And the apostles start speaking in unknown tongues. Everybody starts speaking in unknown tongues. And the scripture says they're hearing them in their native language. And you know what God is saying? What I have scattered at Babylon, now I'm bringing back to myself. Because the blood of Jesus has now become the identif identification of holiness. 
The blood of Jesus has now become the, 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 the thing that I'm going to identify my holiness with. I don't need to scatter the people anymore so that I can identify my people. My people will be identified by the blood of Christ and the spirit of the living God. In Matthew chapter 19, verses 28 and 29, says, Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the sons of man sit on, when the Son of Man sits on the glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Truly, I tell you, at the renewal of all things, this word renewal is actually in in the in the Greek is the word palingenesia, and it's a combination of two words, palin and genesia. Palin meaning again, and genesia meaning beginning. If you'll notice, genesia is actually only separated by one letter from the, from the word genesis, which means origin. This is, Jesus, this is Jesus' promise, is that there's coming a day where he's going to restore everything to genesis. He's going to restore everything to Eden, and man is going to walk with him and dwell with him. They're going to serve him, and everything else in creation is going to serve them, because that was his intent in Eden. And he's going to bring everything back to Eden. Whoever's doing communion, I'm, I'm, I'm closing up here, probably, so you can get ready for that. In Revelation chapter 21, it says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw a holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. God is making all things new. So if you're going through a hardship or a struggle right now, you can rest knowing that God is making all things new. If your marriage doesn't look so good right now, you can rest knowing that God is making all things new. If you have a child that has walked away from God, that is living a life outside of Jesus, you can rest knowing that God is making all things new. He's bringing all things back to himself. He will restore the most broken parts of us and the most broken parts of, of this world, and he will restore it not just to what it was before, but better than it was before. He won't just restore it, he'll glorify it. That's his promise to us. When God called the man Abram out of his land to go to Canaan to live, his promise to Abram was this, I will make your offspring as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand in the seashore. And then you know what happened? Nothing. 
for a long time. Abram lived his life waiting for God to fulfill his promise. And, before, and, and even when Abram had tried to manufacture God's promise, God didn't let go of his promise. And then before God had ever, before Abram had ever seen God manifest his promise on earth, you know what he did? He changed his name to Abraham. Because the name Abram means exalted father, but that name Abraham means exalted father of multitudes. And God was saying to Abraham, I want you to live in the identity of my promise before you see it manifest in your life. And maybe sometimes when we're going through a hardship or a struggle, what we need to do is we need to look in the mirror and we need to call ourselves restored before we see it manifest in our life. Because God is faithful in everything that he says he'll do. Right. God is restoring all things to himself. Let's pray. Lord, we're, we're so grateful, Lord, that you can restore us. That in the middle of our deepest brokenness, that you don't waste anything, Lord. Lord, you, spent, you, you, you used the most terrible and, and, and hardest moments of our lives, Lord, to refine us and to fertilize the seed of faith within us so that out of it might grow something beautiful, something full of life, and something that might produce fruit and seed. But we're thankful for you, that your mercies are new every morning, Lord. Lord, you're faithful to us. So we stand in and we walk in your promise, God. Even when we don't see it manifest in our lives, even when we haven't seen any life sprout out of it and everything looks hopeless, we live in the promise that you're restoring all things. Lord, write this on our hearts and let it encourage us. We love you, Lord, and we worship you in Jesus' name.